wanted to say two quick things before I jump in this morning. Um, first off, great job on singing the new song this morning. Uh, that was our first time we've ever sung that song, and you guys just did awesome. Second, as you heard from Blake, what Blake prayed for is um, we want to, as a session, to pray for our people. And so what you're going to start seeing is every week we're going to pray for three members, three families of our church. So when your time comes, you will be getting an email. If you want us to pray specifically for you, respond to that email with some prayer requests for your family. If you don't respond, we're still going to pray for you. (laughs) But if you want specific prayer, please respond to that email so that we can include that. And what what... we're wanting to do is we want you to know that we pray for you. We are a church that prays. We want to pray for every one of our members by name, adults and children, because we care for you and we love you. So that's that's two things I wanted to say. Um, And as has become our custom, if you're able and willing, will you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word found in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God of mercy, you have promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this sermon had potential of being the shortest sermon ever. Blake told me, just read the passage twice and sit down. And I I almost took him up on that offer. So I have this app on my phone, and every single day it pops up with a reminder like all apps do. It comes up with this reminder, and it always captions it as past memories. And what it is is it displays all the pictures that I've saved on my phone and have uploaded to the Google Cloud, and these past memories are reminding me of my past. Now, we have all experienced going down memory lane, looking through 
past photos. We have photos lining our hallways in our homes. We decorate our living rooms. And maybe, maybe some of us have some people enshrined in their little rooms, whether it be our children or even grandchildren, or maybe our boyfriend or girlfriend. If you're in middle school, this trip down memory lane will remind you what you once looked like in your awkward pre-teen bodies. If you're in high school, you can be quickly reminded you too were a middle schooler and it really wasn't that long ago. As adults, we have two primary reactions to seeing our old pictures. We can either remember what we used to look like in fond memory and wish that it actually wasn't that too long ago, or we don't. We can look at our pictures with some disdain, wishing we had amnesia. And actually, there, there actually might be a third response. There might be a handful of you who actually look the exact way you did 30 years ago. If that's one of you, we get it. Your secret is safe with us. But when we look at these pictures from the past, what we typically see is some sort of physical transformation. Something has happened. We look different. We feel different. We are different. Last week in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, Paul said three things. He informed the church of Ephesus why he prayed for them. He celebrated that their faith was working out in love. Then he informed them of what he prayed for them. He asked that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having their eyes enlightened to what God was doing on their behalf in Christ. And then he informed them of the implications, and he extolled them at the remarkable power of God in which he displayed when he raised Christ from the dead, exalted him, and seated him at his right hand, head over the church, fullness of all in all. Well, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul then takes this church of Ephesus down memory lane, showing them the picture of their past. He's connecting this part so that they might see with full knowledge of the powerful work that God has displayed in their life. And what I want us to do this morning is to take a trip down memory lane, looking at the pictures of our past, and there's three things I want us to see. Who we truly were. Then I want us to see who we truly are. And thirdly, I want us to see what we truly were created to be. Because this passage is one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture of the true reality of human depravity. God's mercy and grace and God's resurrection power for those who are united to his Son, Jesus Christ. This hope to which we have been called, this hope stands as a picture of the transformative power of God the Holy Spirit working in the lives of believers. So I want us to see who we truly were, what we truly looked like. And here's the bad part. It's a pretty bleak picture. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, And you. 
You. You by yourself. You under your own power. You, as you were born, you were dead. Lincoln Duncan says, death, according to the scriptures, is the spiritual alienation from God. Apart from him, there is no life. Metaphorically, death is spiritual excommunication from God. And as Paul reveals in Romans 15, or 5, 17, that the condition is due to Adam's sin, our first covenant mediator. For he says, because of one man's trespass, death, death reigned through that one man. This is also what David says in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul here is summarizing all of what scriptures, from Genesis up to the date he penned this letter, of what it looks like outside of Christ. Yes, we were still breathing and moving and thinking and doing and all the rest. But if you were not, if you are not in Christ Jesus, you are dead. And this death isn't just through Adam's original sin. We are also dead because of our actual sin. And you were dead, he says, in your trespasses and sin. Trespasses can be understood as a violation of God's law. It's trespassing. It's going where God told us not to go. Going outside the fence that he created to protect us. And then it gets worse. We were not merely trespassing. We did not merely just find ourselves somewhere we shouldn't be, but we actually are in sin. Treacherous rebellion. Particularly rebelling against God's created order. It's not like we just suddenly looked up and found out that we were lost or that we were in the wrong spot. No, we actively went there. We plowed over the fence. We, like Adam and Eve before us, said, I do not want to obey. And the earnings which we receive from our sin is spiritual death. Separation, excommunication from the presence of our holy God. Throughout scriptures, life is exemplified as living communion with God. And what Paul is saying is, you all once were dead in your trespasses, or as the NIV says, your transgressions and sins. Brothers and sisters, this is not the message we hear from the world. And I'm going to talk about the world in just a minute. But what the world wants us to hear is that, in fact, we are inherently good. And if we just look inside ourselves, we can actually do anything we put our mind to. But that's actually the exact opposite of what Paul is telling the church in Ephesus. He's saying, 
There's nothing in us that can reconcile us back to God. There's nothing about us that makes us acceptable to God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Here, Paul says, this is the truth of the gospel. You, in your own power, in your own strength, you're dead. You've got nothing. You don't have a heartbeat. You've got no pulse. You've got no oxygen in your lungs. You are dead. And dead people can't do anything for themselves. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This metaphor for walking is something we need to familiar ourselves with, especially in the book of Ephesians. But Paul used it in his writings generally. And walking is this metaphor for what we do in our everyday life. It's the conduct by which we live by. And it's interesting, when God brought Israel out of Egypt... He specifically commanded them this in Leviticus 18.3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I will bring you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Paul is saying, if you walk that way, it will lead to death. It's the way that we conduct ourselves. The way that we conducted ourselves, we were walking dead. Although that we were going through the motions of life spiritually, we had nothing. I love Calvin's comment. He says, he does, Paul does not mean simply that they were in the danger of death, but he declares that it was a real and present death under which they labored. And then it gets worse. Paul then reveals three controlling powers which with, which with, the, with which they lived. The first, they followed the course of this world. Or more specifically, the age of this world. Paul has continually spoken about the new age that has come to us in Christ. And yet here he contrasts it with the age of the world. For the Jewish mind, there were two ages. There were present age and the future age when God would reveal himself and would create all things new. Yet it is where we found ourselves in the past, following the age of the world. The age which Paul says elsewhere is doomed to pass away. Whose rulers will be conquered. This present age was a life of lostness. The current age in which they found themselves was an age in which the Edenic life, perfect communion of God, was a distant memory. We once walked according to the way and the age of this world. And then Paul presents a second controlling power following the age of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They walked according to the ruler of the air. This is a description of Satan himself. In John's gospel, he is called the ruler of the world. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is referred to as the ruler of demons. Paul describes this ruler as their 
past ruler. They formerly lived under his dominion, under his power. They were his slaves. The spirit, the devil that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Those who still actively rebel. Those who still actively are disobedient. Those who are still under his power are sons of disobedience. They were under the realm of the world. They were under the control of Satan himself. And thirdly, they were carrying out the passions of their flesh among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This flesh is a term that Paul often uses contrasting life outside of the spirit. Paul can absolutely use it to talk about the physical realm, our physicalness. But most often he speaks of it as contrary to the life in the spirit. Paul is saying that everyone, everyone, he says this, among whom we all once lived. Everyone, without exclusion. Everyone wasn't just lost and needed to get back on track. Wasn't just close and they needed just to try a little bit harder. Paul describes here the life dominated controlled by the consequences of sin, resulting in eternal alienation from God that deserved nothing but his just wrath. That's what it means. We were, by nature, children of wrath. That's what our inheritance was going to be. His wrath is his necessary and proper response to his creatures rebelling against his sovereign reign. To be in communion with him, to claim dominion over his creatures, yet we lived in complete rejection, rebellion, and disobedience. This is the state of all mankind. But this isn't just a picture of the world in which we once lived. This is a picture of our past. We were not morally neutral. We lived in open rebellion against the God who created all things. We didn't just occasionally make a misstep. In our entire being, we were anti-God. And again, this isn't what we hear from the world in which we live. The world in which we live actually says that if you desire something, it, can be, it cannot possibly be wrong. If it's something that makes you happy, if it's something that makes you feel good, it must be good. The world teaches that if it's something we do by nature, and since by nature we are good, then we must do it. But brothers and sisters, Paul is saying the complete opposite. If you think 
that way, if you think that way, it is actually evidence that you are still spiritually dead. That the spirit and the power of the ruler of this air is still your master. Because what this generation says is follow your desires and if anyone tries to tell you to do otherwise, if anyone tells you wrong, they are the ones who are wrong. And if they say that, they are proving Paul's point. They are simply reflecting the one that they follow. They are simply living, walking in accordance to the forces and the powers of evil. But let us make no mistake. We aren't any better than they are. Let us make no mistake that there's only one thing that can change their lives forever. And it's the grace of the Almighty God. They are acting according to their nature. They cannot do anything else. Their hope is in whom we have hope. And his name is Jesus. The world that we are living in proclaims this to be true. And this is a picture of our past. And it's not a pretty one. It's not a glamour shot. It's not even a mug shot. Paul is taking us down to the morgue and identifying our bodies there. This is where we once were. But then he reveals who we truly are now. In the light of this hopelessness, in our complete and total depravity, in our complete inability to do anything for ourselves, with ourselves, or by ourselves, when we were dead in our transgressions, and sins, when we were walking according to the age of this world, when we were under the control of Satan, when we we're living according to the flesh and evil desires, we have two of the greatest words of the gospel, but God. You remember, in verse 1 he started, and you. And in verse 4 we hear, but God who created the entire world by the word of his power, spoke into our darkness and gave us the light. But God, out of his own character, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the love and the character of the God who sought us out when we wanted nothing to do with him. He was a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. 
God stepped in on our behalf because God did something for us we could not do ourselves. Out of his covenant love, his hesed love, his tender mercy, he chose sinners like you and me and granted us forgiveness and eternal life. He did not leave us where we deserved to live. He is not capricious. He is not unpredictable. He is not spiteful. He is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Blake has said this two times this week, both in youth group and men's Bible study. God does not love us because Jesus died on the cross for us. God sent Jesus to the cross because of his love for us. This is exactly what Titus wrote. This is our New Testament reading. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and evil, hate. Hatred hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is the deep, deep love of Jesus. We were walking dead, and He saved us. And often we speak of this unmerited grace as receiving something that we don't deserve. That's, that's actually how I've defined it in the past, but I think it's actually something far greater. Because unmerited grace isn't just giving something that they don't deserve, it's giving them the opposite of what they deserve. The Ephesians aren't innocent bystanders. It's not like at one of the parades. It's not like they're just standing on the sideline and the people are just, and God's just throwing candy to them and they just happen to pick it up. Grace is given when God goes into the morgue, calls us by name, and brings us back to eternal life. Grace is Him forgiving our act of treason against the king. He forgives us despite our demerit. Grace is when he exchanges his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And this is what Christ has done. He has made us alive together with him. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is actually what I said last week, and I got a little bit ahead of myself, is that we died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, and we've been seated with Christ. And I connected it to that to the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. But that's not actually what verses 20 and 22 say in chapter 1. But that is exactly what Paul says here. We were dead, but now, right now, we are participating in resurrection life. He has made us alive. He has raised us. We have experienced spiritual resurrection now. And we are seated in the heavenly places. No power, no rule, no authority can overcome us if we are one with Christ. 
In the opening scene of The Empire Strikes Back, the rebel forces are hiding on the frozen planet Hoth. And while Luke Skywalker was out on patrol, a Yeti-like creature called a Wampa hit him and knocked him out and took him back to his cave. And unfortunately, they created this terrible scene to the original film. But what happens is Luke finds himself in this cave and Han Solo goes out to find him. Luke escapes, but then he suffers from this coldness, and he's about to die in the snow, and then Han Solo finds him. And what does Han Solo do? He kills his animal, called a tanton. He cuts it open, and he shoves Luke's body into this dead animal. It's the warmth of the body that keeps Luke Skywalker alive. This is very similar to how God found us, except that we weren't just barely alive, we were dead, and he inserted us into Christ Jesus our Lord. It is by grace you have been saved. God, by his great mercy, has put us in Christ. We were in him when he died upon the cross. We were in him when he rose on Easter morning, and we are in him as he is seated on his throne of glory. This is what our baptisms signify, our union with Christ. His death was our death. His freeing us from our slavery and dominion of sin. His resurrection is our resurrection which leads to new life. We have been born again in Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He has chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The only way that is possible is to be in Christ Jesus our Lord. I chose Titus 3 as our scripture reading the other option was from the book of Ezekiel. Because what is being described here in verse 2 is the exact same thing as what happened when Ezekiel spoke into the valley of dry bones. A bunch of dead people came to life by the power of God's word. We have been saved. We are saved co-raised, co-seated, there's nothing left for us to do. There's nothing to be added. We have been saved by Christ. This is our hope now and in the age to come. And so Paul says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is who we truly are. Our salvation doesn't originate with us. It doesn't come from our great effort. It comes completely and solely by the grace of God, who saw dead men and women, and by his grace, brought them alive in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have no room to boast. We have nothing over the world 
because we have done nothing. It is all to the glory of the great praise of God our Father and what he has done in Christ. I went to the, the um, post office this past week to pick up some mail, and there was a pretty long line there. I didn't know what was going on, but people, people were waiting to get the new passport. And if you have any idea of how to get a new passport, please let me know, because I looked it up, and I still couldn't figure it out. But all of these people are trying to get these new passports, and you have to have all the right documents, you have to have all the right things, and you have to wait in a really long line to get these new passports. Our new passport is Christ. The way we get from death to life is Christ. This is who we were. This is who we truly are. And lastly, I want us to see what we've truly been created to be in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just as God created the entire universe by the power of his word, he has recreated us in Christ. This workmanship, this, this, this word for workmanship could easily be translated as creation. For we are his creation created in Christ Jesus. But look, but look what Paul says. We're not simply just created. Our redemption doesn't just stop that once we are saved, we are saved from something so that we can be saved to something created in Christ Jesus for good works. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Loving our God before all things. Created for good works is living by the fruit of the Spirit. The God that has brought us back from the dead. And this word or this phrase prepared beforehand is almost the exact same word that God that Paul used to describe how we were predestined for adoption. He's reaching back into ancient past and says, not only has God chosen to save you by grace, but before the foundation of the world, all God has prepared work for you to do in his image, bringing restoration to his creation. Marcus Bart, a commentator, says that the spirit who produces all the works and attitudes does not take control over man in such a fashion that men are manipulated like puppets on strings. But he activates man and makes him a responsive partner to God's covenant calling. Brothers and sisters, we have a bleak past, but we have a glorious future. Our past picture, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. And then God stepped in on our behalf. We have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Right now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We shall not be overcome. It is by grace God's lavish grace and mercy 
that you are saved. This is the message of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, instill in us this truth. May we cling to it. May we hold true to it. And may your grace change us forever. That we might be a blessing to the nations. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.